Hi, I'm Stephen Downs. And I'm Adam Risby. And this is Letters to the Sky, a podcast about the metaphysical iconoclasts, philosophical visionaries, and religious leaders of the world. Whether you consider yourself religious, spiritual, neither, or something in between, we invite you to take a deep dive with us down metaphysical rabbit holes and learn to see your life from a new perspective. Hello, Adam. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Great. Great, That's great, good. great. <laughs> Master of awkwardness, man. I love your one-word answers. Do you know we're recording a podcast right now? That's right. That's Some right. conversation would be good. Or else it's just going to be me here. Uh-huh. My cat is sick, so if he meows and yowls for a little bit, I'm sorry, everyone. But, you know, when he's uncomfortable, he gets sassy. And he just went to the vet, right? He did. He got some shots because he has an upset tummy. Well, I hope he gets better. Me too. And it'd be nice to have a a little feline love in the middle of our call, too. That'd be nice. All right. They're not pretty. His yells aren't pretty. Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, which book are we reading? Good Dog Carl. All right. We... Wait, try try that one again. Good Dog Carl. (laughs) Why are you holding up Good Dog Carl? The book I have in my hand here, um, Stephen, we're on a Zoom here, and um, Stephen is having trouble reading. The book I have in my hands is Baird T. Spaulding's Life and Teaching of the Masters of the Far East, Volume 1. Volume 1. Okay. All right. Fair enough. That's the truth. I was lying before. We're not reading good. We should do Good Dog, Carl. Oh, yeah. It's a favorite kid's book growing up. All right. Adam, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Papa Spaulding? Papa Spalding. Yes. So so this is a gentleman who it's in the, interesting. I was researching his life and realized uh there's more that we don't know about him than there is uh that we do. I wanted to start with something as simple as when was he born and where was he born? Uh but even those two things were hard to find. Some sources say he was born in England. Others say he was born in upstate New York. Then even others say he was born in India. So that's interesting. I don't get a Cockney accent from the the writing of this book. You don't get a Cockney accent? No, no. Yeah. Well, I guess it could be New York. I certainly don't get an Indian accent, but... I certainly don't. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like the whitest guy in (laughs) India. Yeah, yeah. So he was born, uh, per some records, in 1857. But there are other records that say he was born in uh, 1872, so it's not quite clear. But regardless, at some point in his young adulthood, he claims to have gone to India, where he experienced very advanced, spiritually advanced men and women who demonstrated powers, psychic powers, to put it simply. But really, I think the crux of... The book is capturing those stories and capturing that it's more than the psychic powers. It was their spiritual understanding and the depth of their realization that really made it worth writing a book about. He, though records do note that he was a mining engineer in the American West for the majority of his life. And coupled with that, of course, the speaking engagements of these books that he had written. That's what we know on a high level about Papa Spaulding. Yeah, and I would say, you know, so we're we're doing this book, I think, for a couple reasons. One, because it's a 
well, not even one. The big reason is because it is really foundational to understanding American spirituality, especially, and, and probably Western spirituality more broadly, mm-hmm. especially as it relates to kind of the New Age movement of these ideas that were brought over from the East and, you know, kind of took hold in the minds of Westerners, specifically specifically Americans in kind of the late 19th through kind of like first, third to half of the 20th century. Um, and there is definitely a particular flavor to them. And we talked about it with uh, talking about Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society. We started talking about with Ascended Masters. You know, there, there, are, there are other books we could get into too. I would kind of put, it's hard for me to put Yogananda into this, into this category just because he is actually an Indian person. But a lot of his his writings sound very much like this era. And I think it probably had something to do with that that kind of series of generations um, or the English they used was still very proper. was still very like classy, so to speak, had a bit of a more of an aristocratic feel to it. But this book is, you know, regardless of whether of when Baird T. Spalding was born or even whether he actually went to India and met these beings. I, I really feel like there's nothing in these books that shocked me, even knowing Indian tradition aside from like, western views of it like none of this stuff is out of the ordinary for you know hearing about spiritually advanced people in india yeah i would absolutely agree i think when this book came out i think the things that were shared with you know these beings who were purportedly living 500 600 years who could levitate who could bilocate who could uh, communicate via thought transference or telepathy i mean these are some of the things that he talks about in the book having witnessed at that time in the 1920s when this book was published that those were outrageous those were wild and crazy statements to make and i think it did a lot to explode the mass consciousness at the time there was a burgeoning understanding of spirituality whether you call it the new thought movement or or the unity movement that is or even the, the spiritualist movements at the time which the theosophical society was a part of that was really in its in its uh nascent phase but this blew something open it it feels like that way to me however at as you noted, Stephen, I felt the same way. Like I read this book when I was a lot younger, and there was such a feeling of, well, yeah, of course, of course, this is possible. Of course, right. this is what where humanity is headed if it wishes to be. And and I think I, I do want to say at the outset of of this episode that this episode isn't about whether these events happened or not, because I don't think that that is relevant. And nor, nor is it helpful because, okay, you're convinced that they happen. Okay, great. You're convinced that they're, that they haven't happened. Well, okay, great. You just, there's no movement there. But if, if you can take the story for what it is, which is an inspirational story, I think at its heart. And uh, if you take it at that, you, it, there is a lot of movement. There's a lot of possibility there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, the, for those of you who have read this book, you'll be already familiar with its structure. But for those who haven't, the book, and actually this is a series of books, there are six of them, although only the first, I think, four are actually the story. 
of this man's travels. And then the last two, I believe, are kind of like teaching tools for people who want to use this, this, you know, teach this work in like in, in America, for example. And so the structure is, you know, this gentleman, Baird T. Spalding, is in India with a crew of people presumably there to do some sort of expeditioning in the late 19th century. And they, yeah, as Adam said, they meet these uh, advanced beings, these masters, as they call them. And the book goes through their travels with them and the, the lessons that they teach them. And they're very inspirational. But the bulk of the book is actually mono, like dialogues by these beings. And that's why it's that's why we're considering it so inspirational. It's you know there is like they did this. Uh, then this happened, especially at the beginning, when he's giving some context for the types of things that these beings can do. But a lot of the chapters are them, the beings themselves, dialoguing with Baird T. Spaulding or people at present. And so there are pages and pages of quotes that are just, you know, a being, one of these masters speaking to the audience, so to speak. And a lot of them, you know, have the similar feeling, you know, it's basically like like drilling it into your head <laughs> that that these things are possible, and so I just want to give give people a little bit of context if you haven't read them that the the bulk of these books is basically like inspirational dialogue from these masters. Let's dive in to the book itself. Yeah, and we'll say for this one we actually don't have three questions this time. Everyone who's so used to us and craves the three question format, I'm so sorry. We're gonna try and do it like we did <laughs> the first time with Zarathustra, except we're gonna do it. Much better because now we have a few podcasts on our about. Oh man, oh, those are famous last words. I'm sorry I said that. You, I should. You have said totally anything. just set up expectations. Man. Okay, if it's oh god. Okay, I I don't know what to do. I carry forward, carry on, <laughs> move forward. For all the listeners out there, lower your expectations. Wh- wherever they are right now, they need to be lower. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Adam, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. So okay. I'm going to start by reading the foreword of the book because this gives you from Papa Spalding's, from his mouth, straight to your ears, you'll get his intention with, with this book. In presenting the life and teaching of the Masters of the Far East, I wish to state that I was one of a research party of 11 persons that visited the Far East in 1894. During our stay, three and a half years, we contacted the great masters of the Himalayas, who aided us in the translation of the records, which was of great assistance in our research work. They permitted us to enter into their lives intimately, and we were thus able to see the actual working of the great law as demonstrated by them. We call them masters, which is merely our name for them. One living the life described herein is entitled to reverence and consideration as a master. I like that forward because it gives the tone of the book right from the get-go. You're you're joining Baird Spaulding and his crew on a journey, and you are getting to experience from from their point of view what it's like to live with masters, with people who who understand the great law and can demonstrate them. And and this is another thing too that we end up learning in the in the book is if ever there was a time in um for our Christian uh listeners or or anyone who, who believes in in Jesus Christ, the the stories of walking on water and and the miracles that he performed, if if there's a part of you that 
that believes that those things indeed happened, then this book seeks to answer how. What was it that Jesus did? What mindset was he in? What under what spiritual understanding did he have that enabled him to do that? And I think the other point that this book's book makes pretty clearly multiple times is that there wasn't anything special about Jesus that every human being if they had that understanding, um, could enact, as they say, the great law and demonstrate it in the same way. Yeah, I mean, even in the, I'm not going to, I'm sure I'm not going to quote it directly here, but I mean, I'm quite certain that one of Jesus's quotes in the Bible is that, you know, these and greater works you shall do. You know, it was, which always struck me as kind of one of the points is that, you know, it, I'm not special. You're, you're like this too. You just don't, believe it or know it yet and so this book as you said goes into a, in pl- kind of more in more, more plain english than the bible for sure although it doesn't give literal instruct step-by-step instructions it gives kind of a rundown of the mentality and the kind of uh, the way one might go about it this is probably a good time for for another yeah. quote go ahead uh page page 16 if you if there's anyone following along we know that this greatest of all teachers and they're talking about Jesus in this quote. We know that this greatest of all teachers came to show more fully that the Christ in him and through whom he did his mighty works is the same Christ that lives in you, in me, and in all mankind, that we can, by applying his teachings, do all the works that he did and greater works. Oh, there you go, right there. It's even in this book. <laughs> That's right. You know, and they, they, they said, uh, carry on from that, we believe that Jesus came to show more fully that God is the one great and only cause of all things and that God is all. And so, yeah, all right. Well, I feel like we've kind of set up the book. Yeah, yeah. And now it's interesting, we kind of chatted about this before starting the episode, but although Baird Spaulding went to India, the language is very Western and very Christian, I would even say. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. It's use of the word God, Christ, and you know, si- similar. It, they even talk about John the Baptist and and different stories, but a lot of Christian overtones in this, which is interesting. And I think uh, this is something you said, Stephen, earlier. I think that's more indicative of the the Master's teaching in a way and language that uh, the this party could understand. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, I think, I'm hoping we talked about it in the, the Buddhist episode, but a concept called upaya, which is, you know, tr- masters who are truly enlightened are have the ability to meet students exactly where they are and to say things in a way that are understood. And it's called skillful means. And so, you know, when I hear this kind of language, I, I, it doesn't really take me out of it. Although, you know, someone who's a bit more skeptical would look at this and say like, well, why didn't, why didn't they use Indian terminology or Tibetan or wherever they happen to be? And I've always, it's always just kind of like, well, you wouldn't use that with someone who didn't know that, those concepts. And, and indeed, especially talking about, you know, Jesus as being a master, just like one of them, that, you know, you wouldn't need to. These concepts already exist in the Western mind, um, someone who was raised Christian. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's, I mean, even the concept of God is 
largely not found in the East. Yeah. Except in modified forms, I think, you know, in in various uh, Vedantic lineages, you, of course, have gods and goddesses, but they are not in, they're not viewed in the same way as monotheistic religions, right? They, they're more readily acknowledged as, as reflections of... Uh, of the psyche archetypes of of certain energies of of nature uh, and of the cosmos but when god as an ultimate sense is brought up in the eastern traditions it's usually in an impersonal formless way uh, like the ground of being right that kind of thing which which is more of a, a buddhist concept right? dharmakaya right so, something that's far far beyond um form. Uh, but mm-hmm. in this case, it, there's language like God loves his children and, and God wishes to embrace uh, his his son, right? The, there's that kind of language re- that really makes you, brings you in a, into a Western mindset, but also I think is upaya, it's skillful means. Like you create, you generate a sense of love and and a feeling of uh, of oneness and and being cared for and being loved by this great force, this great presence. Yeah, absolutely. I, I that didn't really that didn't really bug me because I I kind of took it. It's like reading the the Bible in an esoteric way. You know, the language it says something in, in words that can be interpreted multiple ways, and and it's just you just have to know how to read it. That being said, so to get into kind of the as a you know, to maybe get a little more into this book's meaning to me is just like you said, you talked about the relationship of generating that love and that devotion and that reverence. You know, that is the way that these masters talk about beginning to step onto this path of achieving this mastery for ourselves is really to alter the relationship that we have to both our external and our internal worlds. And instead of seeing the world outside of us, or even the world inside of us as antagonistic, as something that has to be conquered through force of will, there is a request to turn inward and to develop a sensitivity to what's already there, to what's already available. And this is something that's, and this is probably why it sounds so familiar to me, who's someone who's a little more versed in the, the Eastern traditions, is that's exactly what you would hear if you were in, if you were in India, or you were in a place like, you know, like Tibet, is, is of developing more of a sensitivity to what's already there, as opposed to trying to command it with your human will. Yeah, that's really that's really well said. I think that, I mean, that's the nature of the word esoteric, right? Eso, as opposed to exo, exoteric. This is really about going within or becoming aware of what is within. This book, there's two things. I, I do want to share some stories that Baird Spalding shares, but before I do that, I, I want to say something. I read this book when I was really young, and it did two things for me. Like three. <laughs> like the first baby's first book for you? I wouldn't be surprised. I was a freshman in high school, so uh, ninth grade. Four? No, <laughs> no. ninth grade. <laughs> the book did a couple of things for me. One, it solidified in my mind that there are there have got to be people out there who who can do these things. It wasn't just one person two thousand years ago. There are many many people, and and it made the the world of oneness with god 
uh, so much closer as a reality. And it was very inspiring in that sense because I, I felt like I want to be like that. I want to be like like those masters. I want to mm-hmm, I want to study and I want to learn. And I I, I want to uh, feel what it's like to live life that way. To live life mm-hmm. in such deep harmony with mm-hmm. with with all of reality and to not suffer anymore. And the other thing that I did was I think this was also a product of me being a teenager, having read the book is. I just thought it was so cool to be able to walk through fire and walk on water and and that that feeling of this is pretty damn cool. It, it just it is also inspiring, but in a way that that a teenager mind would appreciate. Yeah, you could like you could like smite people. Yes, just straight up smite them. Like oh my god, like telekinetic powers and moving rocks mm-hmm. with my mind and smiting people. Yeah, <laughs> clearly that's something <laughs> that you want to do. I smote thee. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had the. I did not read it in high school. I, uh, I was a stoner, failing out of college when I read this book. Hey, you made it. You made it this far, Stephen. <laughs> Somehow, not, not, not my doing. That's for damn sure. <laughs> I had the same feelings, which I think a lot of people do. Which is probably why this book has garnered the series has kind of held its place in kind of the development of Western spirituality is that it does, it is a very inspiring story. And the, the words that are spoken by these masters do ring true for a lot of people of, you know, what if you didn't have to fight against everything? What if you didn't have to, you know, struggle swimming in a current, you know, against a current and not even that it's like, you feel like you are, it's just like, that's, that's how they describe the natural state of like, mortal human consciousness which i think everyone can relate to you know that's that's not out, even outside of spiritual circles that's a very common you know experience right exactly let me read uh, a little bit yeah from the beginning this is one of for those who've read this this book this is like a classic uh scene in the book um i certainly have this image imprinted in, in my mind. And I've since gone on to uh, other forms, and a lot of people talk about how this particular scene has stayed with them. But it's the opening scene of Baird Spaulding meeting his, uh, meeting one of the masters, Master Emil, outside. And uh, Master Emil is, is looking at a bird circling above. And this is on page 11. Wait, hold and, and guys, just bear with Adam because he's just learning how to read. So if he makes some mistakes, <laughs> please forgive him. One Sunday afternoon. Very good. Emil and I. <laughs> this is like follow along. <laughs> Hooked on phonics, man. Uh, I graduated. All right. One Sunday afternoon, Emil and I were walking in a field when he called my attention to a pigeon circling overhead and casually remarked that the bird was looking for him. He stood perfectly still, and in a few moments, the bird alighted upon his outstretched arm. He said the bird has a message from his brother in the north. This proved to be a fellow worker who had not reached the attainment whereby he could communicate directly, so he took this means. We later found that the masters are able to communicate with each other instantly by thought transference, or as they call it, a force much more subtle than either electricity or wireless. Even back then they knew about Wi-Fi. 5G. 5G, baby! (laughs) Wireless, yeah. What do you think about when if you heard that for the first time? 
Well, you're you're kind of an odd one. You 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 already follow this stuff. But what would you think that someone in the 1920s, like an average Joe, hearing this, would think? I feel like my mind wouldn't know how to process it. Be almost like a okay, you know, kind of just a barely registering what's happening, you know, uh, which I think would probably be the same for the rest of the stuff in the story. And clearly, you know, it is for, for these guys. I, I don't think my brain would really register it to yeah. be completely honest. Yeah. I, I feel like I would be incredibly skeptical. <laughs> I think that's, I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah. If you, if you think about it, this is, this is pretty bold. This is pretty, pretty bold for him to, to write about, especially in that, and that day and age. And for those people, let me just say, for those people who, who think Baird Spaulding was out to make a buck, there really are so many better ways to have made money at that time than writing stuff that would largely get ignored or leave people highly, highly incredulous. Uh, but anyway, that's just my personal opinion about the matter. What what I would say when I when I read this he establishes a couple of things. It's a beautiful scene, first of all, and just you, you see this master who's sort of like staring at the sky, and this beautiful bird lands on his outstretched arm, and he's clearly in harmony with the birds. I mean, how often do we walk around and and we see birds flying above us? Do we connect with them? Do we relate to them? Do we have a sense of harmony with the natural world around us? I'm left with this feeling like here's this master who is walking about his daily business, you know, doing normal things and then is able to instantly be in harmony with a bird f- flying above and and gathering that this bird is looking for him. I mean, that's that's awesome. It is. It's a, I mean, and then this is like the the tip of the iceberg of, you know, what they talk about, you know. I I think from then on, I'm trying to remember, I don't think it's immediately after that they talk about one of the first things they do is when they start um, speaking with these people who, you know, Emil begins uh, helping them do some translation work of things that they're working on. And then they start traveling, you know, to another village. And one of the things that Emil asks them is, you know, basically says, I'll meet you there. Why don't you leave someone here to, you know, see what happens. And, and then he will rejoin your party. Once we all get there, he will wait for him and he'll see what he has to say and, you know, document everything. The thing that Emil and the other is predominantly Emil because the other, the other masters, especially in the beginning of the book, didn't really have what, you know, as much of a command of, uh, like they weren't directing the, the party in the same way that Emil was. But um, he said, you know, basically document anything. I'm not asking you to believe any of this. I'm not asking you to take my word for any of this. You're, we're going to be with you and you can, you know, you can make your own conclusions, which is a theme throughout the book. And it's a theme that a lot of, you know, awakened masters have, which is like, they're not out to prove anything to anybody. Like they're not out to like make you believe them, you know? And if they are, that's actually a, for me, that's a huge red flag. (laughs) Uh, none of none of the people that I would consider to be actual like enlightened masters, you know, really not that they don't care, but they just they're they they know they can't they know they can't do your job for you, and so they they don't they don't spend a lot of time like trying to convince people. Okay, that being said, so so they are they make this journey and then they get there. They it's like a ten day five day you know multiple day trek by foot. 
between these villages and they leave Emil behind and they are kind of like, okay, I don't understand how he's going to meet us there. And then when they get to the village, he's there waiting for them. And, you know, this is, this is like remote India. This isn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't hail a cab. He didn't take a plane. He didn't take a train. You know, these things aren't there. In and the so, late 1800s. In no the less. late 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> Concord. Uh, <laughs> so he, you know, he was there and they, you know, they were, that was one of the first times that, they were just like, oh, okay, what's happening? What's happening? And and so later on, the the person, member of the party who was there documenting, he speaks about, I believe, that Emil like basically lay lay down in a quiet state and just kind of like stopped his body stopped functioning, so to speak, but it stayed kind of bright and and vibrant, and then eventually it kind of disappeared, and he, you know, and that was like they timed it and that was like a couple minutes before they arrived at the other place and Emil was there. And so, and this is uh, the first of many of these instances where they are bilocating or I mean, not just not even bilocating necessarily, but like teleporting essentially. And they, different masters have different abilities uh, depending on how advanced they are, how much control they have over their, their bodies yeah, so that was one of the first times. Now that would blow my mind. That I would, I would probably have like a stroke and go comatose at <laughs> if someone, you know, even now, like even now to see that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's very. As you were saying that, I I remembered that scene from Return of the Jedi. You know, the the third scene where Yoda is is basically dying on his deathbed, and and he turns to uh, Luke and he's like, Luke, there is another. Skywalker and then he dies and then his body disappears yeah and that I find it interesting I I don't know what George Lucas's source was other than tapping into the collective unconscious and sort of into a a collective wisdom but I feel like there's that sense of mastery where the body the body just vanishes right because there's an awareness of its inherent unreality right that the the body is is more a projection from the mind rather than uh, something that's physically real in in a I don't know in a materialistic sense. That's what it. That's what it, that story leaves for me. It's like glimpsing, glimpsing another world, glimpsing another reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That seems very far removed from uh, from ours. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's. A, let me share another quote here. I wanna. I love sharing quotes because I just feel like there's a certain power. I'm so behind power. on the quotes. I feel like I haven't had many quotes for the past few episodes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. Oh, God. Is it your, don't here, worry. Oh, no, here, I got one for us. <laughs> okay, ready? Okay, okay, you go. Page 92. You are our guests here. There you go. That was the quote. <laughs> All right, your turn now. Is there actually... Okay, there's got to be more to it than that. You are our guests here. I don't even see that. Oh, yeah, it is in quotations. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't lie. Uh, hold on. Let me provide some context to the listeners here. I don't even know what the... Oh, this is actually a good one. This is the scene. Okay, here's the background. They're at some sort of inn <laughs> eating eating a meal or having a meal. And uh, and first of all, the food manifests... Wait, no. There. Uh, this is probably not the, the first time, but there is a time where they're sitting down at a table and food manifests out of thin air. And they say, you know, where did this come from? They're like, it, it came from where everything comes from, the universal. And that's something that gets repeated a lot in this his book is understanding that all things, at least 
all things of form come from a universal source. Uh, and that because of that, there's a radical shifting in the sense of lack, right? You can't mm -hmm. have a sense of lack when you realize everything you could ever want comes from the same source and that source is limitless. And that, I think, puts our current mindset of limited resources on its head. And you realize, no, there isn't limited resources because the source from which everything comes is limitless. Anyway, here's a quote. After breakfast, when we arose from the table, one of my associates started to pay for the meal. Emil said, you are our guests here, and held out to the lady in attendance what we thought was an empty hand. But when we looked a second time, there was just the amount of money necessary to pay the bill. We found that our friends did not carry money with them, neither did they depend on others for their supply. When money was needed, it was right at hand, created from the universal. That's so cool. You wouldn't have to work for money anymore. Wow, that's, I mean, if I was, if I was one of these masters, that would be the least of my concerns. <laughs> oh, this nine to five really killed me. Ah, oh, the nine to five grind, man. <laughs> that's hilarious. See, that's why I feel cities... Cities are spiritual powers. Oh, thank you. Listening. Uh, you're we probably mentioned that, but you know. You're so good, Stephen. Thank you. So cities spelled S-I-D-D-H-I-S. Is that right? I believe so, yeah. These these powers, I feel, are yes, best... that's correct. ...are best manifested after a certain level of spiritual development and spiritual awareness. Because if you get these powers and you're still thinking that you're separate from the world, alone, a victim of the cruel world around you, uh, and then you get these powers, the way that they're going to be utilized is more likely than not in will be in a self selfish way, like Absolutely. getting money to buy a Rolls Royce and, you know, a Rolex and a large mansion, whatever it is people want these days. That's what, what, are, <laughs> what are the commoners want? Rolls Royce mansion? I don't know. <laughs> no, but that's true. And, and so, you know, this isn't, I think I mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning again, is that in this book and indeed in, all sorts of other traditions from, I mean, in this case, from the East, um, from the Indian subcontinent, there is a focus cities as a, as a way to show people that there's more going on than they think, but that ultimately the cities that are developed are secondary to the, to the, the spiritual awakening that is, you know, deeper. And so the kind of this setting up this, this, notion that you know you could develop cities there there are people who learn how to control their bodies i mean even thinking of i don't even know if you consider this a city but like wim hof right who's a westerner who has phenomenal control over his nervous system and over the way his body right the way his body regulates itself you know and to the level where you're like, someone who knows these stories is like well that's a that's like borderline city <laughs> you know and but so clearly it's possible, and I wouldn't say that Wim Hof is necessarily, he's never struck me as a particularly enlightened person. Um, he's just someone who has phenomenal, has figured out a phenomenal way to control his his body. 
And that is kind of the equivalence, you know, like there, you don't necessarily have to do the underlying spiritual work that correlates with something like enlightenment or ascension, and you could still have these. And so in a lot of traditions, they focus more the understanding underneath it all. Um, and indeed, in a lot of traditions, cities aren't even taught until someone is an extremely adept, extremely high trained adept. I would say something, I feel like it's important to say, if there is someone listening who who was born with powers, with, with gifts, let's say, if you're out there, and, and you know, more and more, there there's a lot being documented, like, um, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, Stephen, you know, China's super psychics, have you heard of this? I haven't. <clears throat> oh, yeah, there's, there's like document documents of 100,000 or more cases, verified cases by the Chinese government of children who are able to read uh, books blindfolded by by touching them or by, you know, uh, putting a piece of paper under their foot and then being able to read what's written on it or placing their hands on it, all sorts of stuff. Or, or like there's videos out there of, of these children like uh, lighting pieces of paper on fire without ever touching them. Anyway, there's a lot out there. And so I feel like there's there's more and more people that are discovering this about themselves. What I would say to them is it is not so much the gift that you have that necessarily makes you special, um, but really is how it is used and to whom it is given, right? If it's used in a selfish way, then there are ramifications, there are consequences of that. Um, But if you give it up to the highest of you, if you give it to be used, if you give yourself over as a tool for some greater purpose, for a wisdom that is beyond the conscious mind to to use um, for its purpose, then I say that that is uh, that is worthwhile. Then then your gift is being uh, put to good use. That's my two cents on it. Spoken like a true muggle. Uh, Potter reference, love it. Okay. You know, people don't understand. Oh, no, I'm not even going to go there. No, okay. Oh, now you have uh, to go there. I was going to make a Magneto Professor X joke, but that makes it sound like I know anything about comic books and I don't. I'm I sure don't. you do, more than the average. I know, I know that. I li- no. The fact that you even know Magneto exists, come on. I've seen the X-Men movies. What do you want? Magneto is someone who thinks that his powers are a gift and that he shouldn't have to apologize for them and that he's of a superior, you know, race or whatever. And and then Professor X is like, no, 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 we're no better than anybody else. It doesn't just because we have these powers doesn't give us an excuse to harass the world with them. You'd know that from watching movies. I've never even read an X-Men comic book. Yeah, yeah. I think in your... In your half-hearted defense of not being a nerd, you actually were able to convey something pretty profound there. Well, I never said I wasn't a nerd. <laughs> I mean, I just called you a muggle. I think, actually, no, what you what you said about Professor X, that's really important. Yeah, it's how you, because then, then, and that, I think that applies to people who don't necessarily have psychic powers, but any gift, any ability that you have, whether it's being a great communicator, whether it's being a, a scientist, whether, you know, whatever you find yourself doing in life that you're particularly good at, if you give it over to a greater force, to a, in service of something greater than you, not only does that reflect your mindset, I think there's sort of a feedback in the sense that it entrains a certain mindset, which is that of humility and service, and ultimately a oneness with 
those uh, who you serve. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say I say that you know in my in my own experience that playing around with powers or whatever you want to call them is you know I guess it's it's fun and well, but like it doesn't really get you any further in any sort of spiritual development to be able to do something or not do something. There, I've in my experience and everything I've heard from my teachers is that they're they're separate things. As one develops spiritually, they are developed. They kind of like appear as well. Um, they don't have to be sought out, and most teachers prefer it that way. Most teachers that I know, anyway, that I'm familiar with, it, they prefer that they kind of emerge on their own, um, and they aren't like this. They're not this thing that's taught or you know sought out. And yeah. All right. Let me dive into this next quote, page thirty-four. All right. Which Harry Potter book is this one from? <laughs> this is from uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> wow. Who's a nerd now? Oh uh, yeah. Hey, I'm unabashedly a nerd. Uh, question is whether I'm a geek as well. Uh, a nerd and a geek. I don't know if there's a difference. I've heard there's a difference. All right, so here's the quote. Page 34. Page 34, okay. Getting back into it. Emil said, this is called, oh, this, this is, by the way, they arrive at a place called the Temple of Silence, which has the records that, that you were talking about earlier, Stephen, which apparently were records present at the time of Jesus and John the Baptist and, and all of that. Emil said, this is called the Temple of Silence, the place of power. Silence is power. For when we reach the place of silence in mind, we have reached the place of power, the place where all is one, the one power, God. Be still and know that I am God. Diffused power is noise. Concentrated power is silence. When, through concentration, drawing to a center, we have brought all of our forces into one point of force, we have contacted God in silence. We are one with him, and hence one with all power. This is the heritage of man. I and the Father are one. There is but one way to be on, to be one with the power of God, and that is consciously to contact God. This cannot be done in the without, for God manifests from within. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Only as we turn from the without to the silence of the within can we hope to make conscious union with God. That's pretty powerful stuff. It is, yeah. And something we haven't really talked about much yet is the, the power of silence and its relationship to spiritual awakening do you want to talk a little bit more about it since we, oh, i would or, love that that's just, a that's we a just read about it it's a huge topic and it's a yeah very important topic do you think you can give us a primer in the next few minutes here before we wrap up yeah 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 okay, i definitely think that this is something worth diving into later on so a couple of things there's a lot of symbolism in using the i should say there's a lot of meaning in using the symbols of silence uh and noise Sound, as you know, is vibration. It is a sine wave, essentially, right? Up and down. You have uh, something that is vibrating and producing sound waves in a physics level. And and in order to produce vibration, you need two. You need uh, two states of that of that object, right? That That's what the vibration is about. Whereas silence is the cessation of movement. It's the cessation of vibration. It, it's where everything becomes still. And 
it's symbolically going from a place of duality, the two-ness of sound, to unity. And it relates to the very famous koan, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Who wrote that koan? What's that? Who came up with that koan? Well, you tell me, sir. One of your favorites. Oh, we should do a book on him. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's Hakuin. Hakuin. Master Hawkwind. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I love what you're saying. Wild Wild Ivy, by the way, for those who are interested. We will definitely do a book on him. He's an iconoclast. How have we not done a book on him yet? Okay. I don't know. He's like he's like the coolest Zen iconoclast. He's spent uh, his life shit talking other <laughs> Zen practitioners. It was great. Oh my god. He was you know how the YouTube they have these rap battles on YouTube? Yeah. I feel like Hawkwin would have just been slaughtering people had they been in rap battle equivalents. Of, of yeah, Zen. he just sent people crying. Yeah, he would have, for sure. So the other teacher that I know of that really explicitly goes into this idea of silence and, and noise as a symbolism of the movement from duality to unity, or another way of putting it is the dualistic nature of subject and object and having that dissolve and merge into the uh, the singularity of, of oneness, where there is, where object and subject merge, right? The other author that does that is Swami Lakshmanju, who is a really, in within certain circles, he's a well-known um, uh, Kashmiri Shaivist, who basically dives into Advaita Vedanta, but within 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 a particular lineage which is Kashmiri Shaivism and and he has uh, a great book which actually goes into this these symbols of silence and sound and there are specific there's specific poetry and and literature from that lineage that takes the reader into these sort of spiritual states by repeatedly talking about silence and noise uh, the other i think more surface level but equally as powerful concept is this idea of be still and know that I am God, which is on the level, can be seen it, on the level of the mind, right? Our, our minds are filled with chatter uh, and and random thoughts and vicissitudes of emotion. There's just so much movement there. And, you know, there's a great teaching of looking upon a lake and there's this treasure at the bottom of the lake. You can't see the treasure because the distortion of the image is so great with the ripples on the surface. But if you allow the lake to become still where there's no more ripples on the surface, then you can see right through to the very bottom and see that treasure. And of course, this is you know what the mind does. If we can still the mind sufficiently, we will be able to see through to the core of, of our essence. It's a great great teaching in the use of stillness to, to know oneself. Yeah, and, and it's even, I think in the more, how do I want to say it, it's not even like the more practical level, but it's just kind of the idea that I think anyone can use, whether or not you're a, a follower of a particular like tradition that is you know Eastern or Western or whatever, but this notion that if you're able to still yourself, to still the mind, that something, it's not even something, it's not even something, but there's a, a presence that emerges and it's, it's almost like there's a wisdom there that is, that can come out when the mind is stilled and when we are starting to dissoci disassociate ourselves from those thoughts, you know, the way, the way that this kind of just is described is that we kind of 
put ourselves into the thoughts. You know, we're always looking for, this is very Buddhist, I'm sorry, but you're, we're always like looking for, I said I'm sorry. I said don't apologize. I said I'm sorry. <laughs> we're always looking for, you know, identity. We're like looking for who we are. Like, and we, and one of the ways we identify, you know, identifying with things is literally that, right? We, we ha- see a thought, we grasp onto it, you know, be like, I'm not good enough or I'm great or whatever the thought is about ourselves or about anything. We are like putting ourselves into that thought saying like, this is who I am for that moment, right? Like there's an identity that happens in the moment. And when we are able to still the thoughts, and it's not even that thoughts go away, but when we start training ourselves with like even basic meditation to not follow the thoughts, to like when a thought comes to just stop, right? To just let the thought go. And then, you know, you do that enough and you do that for a while. And for people, some people, it happens the first time they ever meditate. And some people, it takes them six months of meditating. And, you know, who knows? But something happens where all of a sudden you realize like, oh, wait, that's not me. That thought isn't me. And then you say, well, what, who am I then? Right. And then there's this whole mystery that opens up of like realizing that you're not what everyone says they are. Right. Because that's the conventional way in the West, especially of understanding who we are, you know, the whole, the whole Descartes thing, you know, I think therefore I am is that's the, the whole found in a lot of ways for us, the foundation of our identity as humans is people who think as people who have thoughts and ideas and hopes and dreams. And if you start to like pull yourself away from them, not as they're bad, but just to realize like, Oh, you don't have to, there's this wisdom that naturally emerges And what they're speaking of here when we talk about silence and what you were speaking of earlier is just is a depth of that that very few people get to where that silence becomes so intense that, you know, you truly start to see, in quotes, you know, spiritual knowing um, of what really going on. I really like what you shared, especially that idea of of grasping and trying to grasp thoughts, especially thoughts around identity, my story, who I am, who I where I was born and and my successes and failures, right? Uh, and what I got from what you were sharing was that it's possible to have thoughts arise in this in the field of my awareness, and and still be silent, in the sense that there's no grasping there, and and so the the thoughts will arise and then they'll dissolve and return to wherever they came from. But in the process of arrive arising and dissolving, there was no movement at all in within like there's no movement of the of the self um, because Mm -hmm. there's no grasping and to me that's that's silence in within sound which which is related to also um uh, well-known line in the heart sutra you know form is not other than formlessness uh emptiness and emptiness is not none other than form which for me relates to that idea of it's not one or the other this is the world of paradox. You you can be in a place of total silence and stillness, and yet there's all sorts of sound all around you, but there's no movement in in the mind. Yeah, this is this is like one of the most most classic uh, new meditator like confusion is where people who start meditating think that their thoughts are going to stop, and they're slowly driven insane when they realize. They finally realize after like, you know, like six years of meditating and someone finally tells them like, oh, that's not the point. And, you know, you, what have I been spending these last years of my life doing? 
yeah, absolutely. That you know, the thoughts don't stop. If you're a new meditator out there, just the keep, thoughts aren't going to the stop. The thoughts aren't going to stop. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert. Uh, they they might slow down a little. I think, uh, in all honesty, I've noticed that I ha- think less uh, having meditated now for so many years. But uh, they don't. It's just getting old. Stopped. Oh yeah, maybe that's true. <laughs> It's your brain slowing. <laughs> it's the it's the atrophy the neurons, of old age. <laughs> the gaps between the neurons widening. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, this book has so much, and and for on the very off chance that you're uh, that you haven't read this book or you haven't read it all the way, it's filled with many stories that make it engaging, mm-hmm. and I think it also speaks to how how the brain works. Like we we love narrative. The brain loves narrative. The brain loves stories. And within the package of the story comes these super juicy spiritual teachings that inspire and uplift. I always feel better when I read, even a, a page or two from this, and I feel called to to be a better person and to, um, to dive deeper into my spiritual practice. Yeah, it has a certain... Um... We said we've used the word inspirational quality, but there's something about books, this book and this series and other books like it, that they are just have such a purity of content and vision. They're really, you know, it's not it's not Baird T. Spaulding's journal on whether the masters are real or not. You know, it's just it's just kind of like these masters speaking to you, the reader as that this is possible for you as well, which is clearly part of its staying power. And and the cover, the cover has like a monastery on it. If you've got the, the book with you, it's like this Himalayan mountains with this little monastery in a valley and it like the sunspot is hitting the monastery and you're just like, wow, I need to be there. I need to be there right now. I, the I'm, silence all around I'm not me. sure about you, but I definitely wanted to track down where they went and uh, yeah. when I was younger, I was like, I gotta, I gotta go there. I gotta find out where they went. Absolutely, hundred percent. Gotta find this Temple of Silence place. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, it's great. Do you have anything else right now? I think we're good. Read it. Ready to go to the, that's ready my, to go to the after show. That's my takeaway. Uh, read the book. It's amazing. Yes, read the book. Read the book, everybody. Read all. Read the whole series. Yeah, the whole series. Yeah, he he goes pretty deep. So they. We're talking about one book, but the the teachings, you know, as you read them, get progressively deeper, quote unquote, where I, I mean, I feel like they do where at the beginning, it's like, oh, the bird landed and he was looking for me. And at the end, it's like, you know, un- he starts talking about the masters interacting with people's energies and reflecting um, and things like that. You know, things have do with actual manipulation of, of energy, of people's energy. And it's it's fascinating. I gotta. I'm gonna wet your appetite for those who haven't uh, read all the books. Okay, at the very beginning of the book, he has a little a partial listing of some of the contents of the six volumes. Let me just read a couple of the the chapter headings. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, in this first volume, volume one, there there's a chapter called "Walking on Water," uh, visit to the healing temple, the snowmen of the Himalayas. In the subsequent volumes, check this out. Jesus discusses the nature of hell, the nature of God. I mean, the chapter before that is visit with the Master Jesus. Visit with the Master hell. Jesus. The mystery of thought vibrations. The next the next volume, the creation of the planets and the worlds. Explaining the mystery of levitation. 
that was an awesome chapter. <laughs> um, that just gives you a little bit of the taste of some of the the wild, amazing, and inspiring uh, uh, stories of Mr. Spaulding and his and his masters. Yeah, and I was in looking at these. I um, mean, it's the first three books that are the stories, and then the fourth through sixth have more more modern topics, or more topics that are based around um, teaching and not just stories. And as um, as we said before, we have a we have a lovely website called letters to the sky.com. Check it out. We have a Discord channel. We have an email address. I think what else do we have, Stephen? Some say we have a Patreon. Oh, that's right. We also have that as well. So I have heard. If there's a book you want us to cover, um, shoot us a, a note on our website and let us know why. We would love to start covering books that you want us to cover. Yeah. All right, Adam. Well, on to... On to the after show. Other, the after show and other books. And other books. All right, my friend. All right.